Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father God, we sung uh, some amazing words about being amazed. How marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love to us. And uh, we confess before you that sometimes we don't feel that. Many of us know it should be the case. Perhaps some even here this morning are not sure whether it should be the case. And so as we come now uh, to this uh, passage that we're studying this morning uh, from the Bible, we pray that glimmers, insights, Father, even bright, shining light, would blaze upon the face of the Savior that we might indeed stand amazed at your presence at the Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We return to Romans. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) AD 57 or so, that's when Romans was written. As you may remember, we talked about that. He was a man called Paul who wrote it. He was probably writing in Corinth, Greek city probably in a house of someone called Tertius. Uh, Paul grew up as uh, Saul. He was converted on uh, the Damascus Road when he encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus. He'd been trained as a Pharisee, and he'd sent, been sent by Jesus, uh, sent apostle, a sent one, uh, sent by Jesus himself, Paul said, to proclaim the gospel to everyone, to all nations. And uh, Paul, uh, what's happening right now, Paul is beginning uh, soon enough to make his way back to Jerusalem, where he'd been trained as a Pharisee under Galilee, he, to, to, to bring the gospel to the Christians, to bring uh, to the Christians there a collection of money from the Gentile churches in order to help them with the poverty that was uh, happening in Jerusalem at the time, but also specifically because Paul had this vision of the Gentile churches which he had planted now expressing their unity with the Jewish Christians. And so he had this massive collection that he was organizing of money as an expression of the heart of unity between uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, in Jesus. Paul had not yet been to Rome. Uh, He wanted to go there, he tells them. He'd been too busy so far with his current missionary activities, going everywhere, telling everyone about Jesus. He hoped to get to Rome. And he wanted to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians there too. Why? In order that they would be a solid base for the further expansion of the gospel to all nations, starting with Paul's next missionary journey to Spain. So he's writing this theological, doctrinal um, treatise, letter, with the specific purpose that it would be a foundational document for the church at Rome that they would then have a global impact, and in particular, the next uh, step in that global impact being Paul's missionary journey to Spain. 
Paul, so far, has simply made two points in this letter. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1, he says Jesus is king. It's in the line of David. He's risen. He's been declared with power as the king, the son of God. And then verses 8 to 15 of chapter 1, he says, because of this gospel that he's preaching, the gospel of Jesus, Paul himself is now eager to preach the gospel uh, as well to them at Rome. Now, sometimes you and I think, because Paul was such a kind of um, uh, expansive, energetic kind of person, that this sort of exuberance that he clearly had is merely an expression of his own temperament. But Paul uh, is uh, eager to preach the gospel because of the nature of the gospel, not because of his temperament. Let me illustrate that for you. If I announced to you now that I had a million-dollar check right here in the pulpit in your name, there it is, you know, million dollars in your name, and it's not made from my bank account, so it would actually work, you know, uh, and, um, and it's yours if you come to the pulpit right now. Now, my guess is, even though this is a large group, whether you are an extrovert or an introvert, you'd be here. It's a similar sort of way. Because of the nature of the gospel, Paul is exuberant, passionate, energetic. And now in verses 16 and 17, he is going to explain that. It's on page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Let's hear God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Very famous words. Those of us who have read theology, study the Bible, will know that these two verses are sometimes called the thesis statement in, uh, in uh, the book of Romans, and they have been influential in the church, right from Augustine to uh, Martin Luther and Calvin, Spurgeon, the Wesleys, Whitfield. We are diving into uh, some of the most significant words written in the Word, in the Bible. And he starts by saying he's not ashamed which has made many scholars wonder why he begins like that with a negative. I am not ashamed. Is that because he was tempted to be ashamed? Or why is he suddenly saying, I'm not ashamed? Did anyone think he was ashamed? Um, Well, actually, in my view, the reason why he says he's not ashamed is simply because the gospel of Jesus Christ was subject to much public ridicule at the time. It wasn't just him who was... uh, liable to feel tempted to be ashamed, but uh, any Christian. Paul writes about this elsewhere. In the context of Judaism, the idea of a crucified Christ was a stumbling block. How ridiculous. The king, the Messiah, has died. And you go around preaching that? That's good news? Absurd. And then in the context of sort of sophisticated elites, Greek uh, culture and learning, it was foolishness. Oh, yes, you can preach the idea that behind everything there is an order, there is uh, an idea, a platonic idea. But that this logos became flesh, uh, physical, 
and died and, and rose again, and you're not preaching immortality, you're preaching the resurrection of the body? Foolishness. Stumbling block? Foolish. And so for the Roman Empire as a whole, the gospel was not something about which many people were likely to be proud. Not naturally so, it seemed ridiculous. So when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, he means he's not giving in to this prevalent concept that the gospel was not believable, not realistic, not important. Perhaps you feel the same. A crucified Christ 2,000 years ago. One way to Jesus. Certain moral standards. Absurd. See, when Paul says he's not ashamed, he's asserting the very opposite. He is confident, determined, convicted, passionate. He's opposing the shame of being a follower of Jesus with a statement of the reverse. I'm not ashamed. It's not, like anyone, perhaps he was tempted to be ashamed, but it's, it's not a psychological issue. It's a statement of contrast, of civic disobedience, if you like, to use that kind of thing, or spiritual strength. It's like when Rosa Parks in the famous scene, as many of you know in American history and civil rights, and she would not be moved from the front row of the bus. I'm not getting up. I am not ashamed. I'm not saying it's the same set of issues, but it's the same rhetorical, deliberate force. I am not ashamed. He is standing his ground. And perhaps some of us have had to go through that even this morning with friends or family members. I'm not ashamed, I'm going to church. Paul is glorying in the gospel, and he wants to explain why, and he does so in three ways. First, because it is how God wins. So he writes, the gospel is the power of God. What does he mean by that phrase? Uh, I follow um, Martin Luther in many regards in this letter, but in particular here, where Martin Luther says it is the power that comes from God. So in other words, uh, as Luther explained, as let me explain now in different ways, God is almighty in his sovereign power. Well, okay, God is loving. God has a plan to redeem the universe. There are many broken issues in our world today. What is God's plan for that? Where is that power displayed? Where is God's power for the homeless, the lonely, the rich, the poor, the victim of abuse or injustice, the person locked in an ivory tower of atheistic myth or shuttered behind the satin curtains of elite culture in opposition to the gospel? Where is the power of God to unlock the human heart of that person for whom you've been praying? Where is the power of God to reach the next generation or a child as they are in their classes right now? Where is the power of God to reach a child whose lisping voice can only hardly discern basic arithmetic? How are we going to tell them about the meaning of the universe? Where is the power of God to reach the aged widow? who has uh, read all the books and listened to all the conversation, has met everyone and heard everything and heard it all before. Where is the power of God to lead the church to resurgence and fresh growth and impact upon its culture? Is it in the past or in the future? Is it in the latest trend? 
Where is the power of God to lead uh, God's people to uh, renewal? Where is the power of God not to look back to the past, but to redeem this day and this time for a new purpose and new joy? Where is the power of God to get out of bed in the morning when it's ten below freezing and more? Some of you would have asked that question quite recently. Where is the power of God to change a diaper? Some of our mothers ask that at three in the morning. Or a bed pan to look after an infirm older relative. Or to be patient waiting in a traffic jam. Some of us really need power there. Where is God's power? Where does it come from? According to Paul, the gospel. In other words, this is how God wins. You want God to win in a situation? You bring in the gospel. It's the power of God. Now let's contrast that briefly with the way that many in our subculture of Christianity view uh, this issue as to finding where God's power might come from. Many people say that the power of God is in powerful personalities. So here's their theory of ministry effectiveness. What you need to do is find a powerful personality, charismatic, small c, dynamic <laughs> personality. Build around that person an administrative structure, power of God. Well, not according to Paul, the power of God is in the gospel. Or some would say the power of God is in new models of ministry, a new whatever it is, or an old model of ministry. No, the power of God is in the gospel. And Paul, of course, is merely reflecting what Jesus taught us about the seed and uh, its effectiveness. God has invested his omnipotence in a seed that when sown in good soil, grows become the largest of all trees. Isn't that the case? I hope none of us thought it was because of our clever techniques or our persuasive oratory. So Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is how God wins. Isn't that good news? You want God to win in some situation? You want to find his power? It's in the gospel. Second, it's also because how people are delivered. It's salvation for everyone, not some people, everyone. Let me break this down for us. Salvation does not mean becoming a Christian only. It means deliverance from final judgment. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 9. As Paul defines there what he means by salvation in this letter. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, and of course we will be defining justification as we go through the letter, but not only, we need to define salvation. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So salvation is deliverance from final judgment. Also he carries on, if while we were enemies we were reconciled by God to the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Salvation Deliverance from final judgment. Or chapter 13, verse 11. 
He writes there, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. It's a good thing to say during the middle of any sermon. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Well, how could salvation be nearer to Christians? Well, the answer is salvation has in its scope final deliverance from judgment. So by salvation then, Paul means not just becoming a Christian, but deliverance from final judgment. And that, of course, is why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel to Christians. This gospel is how they will be finally delivered on that day of judgment. Therefore, he wants to come to them, to preach to them, to show them how much they owe to Christ, to stir up with them fresh passion and commitment in response to the gospel, in freedom and zeal. So that on the last day, they will be delivered. That is salvation, deliverance from final judgment. It's not just about feeling better. I hope you go away from church today feeling better and happy. I hope you do. But if you go away from church today feeling better and happy but not delivered from final judgment, I have failed big time. I want your happiness, your feelings to be in accordance with your eternal state, my eternal state, salvation. This salvation is for everyone. If you had a Bible and you feel like underlining something, you might want to underline that word. Of course, we know that not everyone will be saved. There are people who have died who have not as far as we can tell, being saved. There are people now who, as far as we can tell, are not saved. Not everyone bows the knee before Jesus in this life. Though everyone will acknowledge that he is the Savior at the end, not everyone will, in the end, be saved. We know that, plus we know that theologically God is sovereign over salvation. He calls those to himself with an effectual calling that he has determined. And yet, Paul writes here, salvation is for everyone. What does that mean? It means this, none, no one, no one at all, not anyone, is in principle, I put that carefully, in principle excluded from God's salvation. It's a very important distinction to have clear in your minds today. Not everyone will be saved. Only those who accept Christ by faith will be saved. And that's why we uh, invest in mission work. That's why we invest in reaching our neighbors. That's why we come to church. That's why we preach Christ. Only those who accept Christ by faith. But there are none, no one, not all, not anyone who in principle is excluded. Black and white, brown, green, blue, and red, whatever color. Upper class, lower class, middle class, somewhere in between class. Asians, Africans, Europeans, Americans, South Side, North Side, Downtown, New York Yankees and Southerners, New Englanders and Midwesterners, Canadians, and even an occasional Brit. <laughs> it's for everyone. No race, no class, no type, no tendency is in principle excluded. Now, people today tell us that we're exclusive. Salvation is for everyone. Someone wants to be saved, they've heard the gospel, they put their trust in Jesus, they will be saved. God is sovereign in salvation, and only those who believe are saved, and not everyone will be saved. 
But the secret things belong to God, not to us, and we offer the gospel freely to all, to all. Now, I think the misunderstanding of this distinction I'm making today is why some people, perhaps you even, some of us here even, are ashamed of the gospel. Let me tell you a story about that that I told someone again this week that I may have told you before as well, but I think it's helpful in this context. I was due to spend some time traveling in Azerbaijan, a nominally Muslim country. Azerbaijan is next to Iran. And I arrived at the airport, the capital, Baku, and my contact had not shown up. Now, at O'Hare in Chicago, this would not be anything more than a mild annoyance. But at the time in Baku, it was more significant. The currency rate was in flux. I had no idea what the rate exchange was since would have changed from when I was last in the country, and I was presented with a whole phalanx of taxi drivers eager for my business, no local currency, and uh, no idea how much anything was worth and ready to be ripped off by everyone in sight. And so I made my way through the crowd, uh, deposited myself to one side, sat in my backpack, I had no, no cell phones at the time, didn't know what to do. Suddenly someone called my name, apparently I had uh, come across this person from my last trip there, and he offered to take me into town and stay in his dormitory, and I agreed, and we arrived. Not a dormitory like Wheaton, by the way, an old Soviet-style monstrosity. And so we went into his room, and he prayed ostentatiously before me, and I smiled as he did. And we chatted in a friendly and happy way together. And I realized as we chatted that we were, of course, we were speaking English, and I tried to switch a little bit to Russian, thinking that might be more helpful. My Russian was much better then than it is now. Don't try me afterwards. It's terribly bad. But uh, we, uh, he didn't know any of that, and I realized he was not Azeri. Uh, many Azeris speak Russian as well as Azeri, but Iranian. In fact, the whole dormitory was an Iranian dormitory. I thought this would be rather fun. I hadn't met many Iranians, so I began wandering around the dormitory, knocking on different people's doors. This will be a good time. Get to know some Iranians. And one man opened the door. He greeted me. He invited me in. We sat down cross-legged on the floor and drank tea. After a while, he looked at me and said, are you an American? I said, no, actually, I'm a Brit. Ah, he said, are you a Christian? I said, well, yes, I am. Good, he said, I've been praying for God to send me someone to tell me about Jesus. Not one to miss a uh, subtle opportunity. (laughs) I proceeded to tell him about Jesus. In fact, I spent that whole week wandering up and down telling people about Jesus. There was also a secret believer there who had also been praying that God would send someone that uh, he could do ministry with. They were longing, many of them, to find out about Jesus and how God could forgive their sins. Salvation is for everyone. God is sovereign. He who seeks will find Therefore, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, much as people would want him to be, because the gospel is how people are delivered. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. It's how God wins, and therefore he glories in the gospel. There is still, though, one very important reason why people sometimes are ashamed of the gospel now, is they don't really think that it's credible or true. And this is the third reason. No, Paul says, because the gospel. He's not ashamed because the gospel is by faith. So he writes, everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Now, by faith, he doesn't mean a leap of faith 
or make-believe or only mental assents, acknowledging something's true without committing. When Paul says belief or faith in Romans, he always means the obedience of faith, as he puts it in verse 5. Every time you see faith in Romans, you can write next to that word obedience of faith. Obedience of faith at the beginning of Romans, he returns to it at the end of Romans. That's what he means by faith. That's his definition of faith throughout Romans. It means trustingly submit. So in our Western mindset, in our Western intellectual tradition, faith is primarily associated with just mentally agreeing that something is true. But for Paul, faith is trustingly to submit. To have faith in Jesus is not to acknowledge that he's king, it's to submit to him and trust him as your personal king. That's what it means. Now, it's very important you understand this so that you are not ashamed of the gospel today. Not everyone who says they're a Christian has trustingly submitted to Jesus as their king. For instance, someone will say that European history shows wars over religion. However, what you have to understand is that the European nations were originally converted at the point of a sword with massed enforced baptisms. This is not trustingly submitting to Jesus as king. Or someone will have had some personal experience of a person who prayed the sinner's prayer but not acted as a Christian, maybe even hurt them. But inviting Jesus into your heart can simply be sort of fire insurance rather than trustingly submitting to Christ as king. So before you decide that you are ashamed of the gospel, would you make, it sh- make sure that it is the gospel that you're ashamed of, not normal human religion, whose default mode, as we will see time and time again in this letter of the Romans, is works righteousness, because we all know we're not perfect and we try to pretend we are. There are only two religions in the world. There is works righteousness, where we put on a good show and are not changed and are legalistic and judgmental and go to war with each other to prove our own righteousness. And that works righteousness goes through every religious group and denomination. This is the natural tendency of the human heart, this religion A. And it is our default mode to which we constantly return unless we are continually exposed to the true gospel if you like, religion, B. That is by faith, which means trustingly submitting to Jesus as king. This is by grace, by God's sovereign work, by what Jesus has done, by the power of God's salvation for everyone. I am deeply ashamed of works righteousness. I'm not only ashamed of it, I abhor it, I despise it, and I oppose it. It is the thin veneer of human religiosity that covers up attitudes of enmity towards God and neighbor and is is present in many different denominations from Protestant churches to Roman Catholic churches to so-called secular churches. Isn't it wonderful? We now have atheistic churches that uh, could be non-religious but actually trumpet a form of works righteousness. Everywhere, the human heart wants to prove that actually it's right because it knows it is not, and that is indeed shameful. And I know that so well because works righteousness is my default mode too. I'm ashamed of that, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone by faith, that is, trustingly submitting to Christ as king. See, this faith is first to Jew and then to the Greek. Now, there have been whole monologues and monographs that have been written about this in the academic world. Uh, I think that Paul is saying something like this. The gospel is announced in the Old Testament or Jewish scriptures first, and now in the fulfillment of the promise in the Old Testament as Christ has come and fulfilled the gospel, it's now being proclaimed to all nations. So Jew and Greek is Paul's way of saying everyone, first to the Jew because then we're given the scriptures which preach Christ, and now Christ has come also to all nations, the Greeks, the Gentiles, that's his way of saying it. This true faith, this Christ who is king, who we trustingly submit, is for the salvation for everyone and it is the power of God. Therefore, he is unashamed of the gospel. It's the only coherent way of putting together God's revelation in the Bible. It is the right explanation of Abraham and of the Jewish nation and of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is Paul's biblical theology, his way of putting together the Bible, that it is by faith, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, that, as Jesus put it, all the Scriptures speak of him, that is, Jesus. That is, Paul would say, Abraham was justified by faith, David was too, And that this message, this gospel, is the spine upon which the whole of the Bible is constructed and can be understood, and by which it is explicable and makes sense. Many people misunderstand this today. You see, the Bible is not a book of random rules with very strange regulations about what kind of clothes you need to wear and what you eat. It's all designed to lead us to the point whereby we trustingly submit to Jesus. It's all pointing in that direction. It shows our need of Him. It reveals him, it all hangs upon him, exalts him, worships him, praises him. This gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, first to the Jew and now to all nations. And it's making its way through the slums of a small shanty town in the outskirts of Johannesburg. It's winning the hearts of the elite in New York City. Driving forward a church plant in downtown Chicago, as uh, we will hear, hear from uh, uh, David uh, when he comes to the men's conference. And it is the last thing, the last thing that anyone, anywhere needs to be ashamed of. So I want us this morning to be able to say as we leave, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. To have that determined conviction. Perhaps you have a relative that comes to visit you on occasions, on holidays, and you're related to them, and you love them, and you would, uh, you know, protect them and need by, but uh, need be. But you walk one step behind them when you walk through them all, and you try not to introduce them to your friends. You, you know, there's an aunt, an uncle, a brother. You're a little embarrassed by them. They keep telling the same slightly off-color joke, and their breath always smells of rotting garlic. And they will insist on telling that story about how you didn't realize the new pair of pajamas you've been given for Christmas was actually pajamas and you wore them to your friend's birthday party when you were 11. And you are related to them and you would not disown them. And if anyone came to attack them, you would defend them. But you do not shout your association from the rooftops or put it on your Facebook page. Perhaps you have a savior that you treat a bit like that too. 
Oh, you know he saved you, you know he loves you, you know he would stand by you on the last day, but in the meantime, you'd rather not have to be too closely associated with him. And if anyone asks whether you're going to Bible study, you will perhaps make a joke about it, as you admit it. But you'll try to appear not too keen or too enthusiastic. After all, who gets excited about church? Instead, uh, you'd rather find a different way to express your own identity than saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, would it make a difference to you if the power of God was for the salvation of everyone who believes and that power was invested in this word? Would that change the Savior from being the relative that you're a bit embarrassed by to you being the fanatic, committed zealot that was Paul. By the way, being zealous for the right thing is a good thing. You cannot be too committed to loving people or loving Jesus or loving the truth or speaking the truth. And anything that is a lie, you must not be in the least little bit committed to. What a difference it would make this morning. We went out with this internal conviction that was Paul's because of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. What a difference it would make with due personal care and nuance and relational sensitivity. We all, because of this, committed to praying for one non-Christian, telling one non-Christian about the gospel, inviting someone to hear about Christ because we're not ashamed. In some way or other, I know that if you really love Jesus, you want this. Jesus made that connection. Perhaps you remember what he said. He wanted a commitment to him and a trust in him. And then he said, he is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and his holy angels. Yes, we do need to be unashamed. Why? Because of the nature of the gospel. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you that salvation is for everyone, and those who have trustingly submitted to you will on that last day be delivered from final judgment. Uh, We confess before you that sometimes when we look around at uh, our society or even Christian culture, we don't want to be too enthusiastic, too zealous, too committed. We'd rather play it cool. Would you give us a fresh 
insight into the power of God that is in your gospel so that in a way that reflects our own personalities, whatever they may be, is thoroughly and unwaveringly committed and is able to stand amazed at who you are and therefore to stand saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, Lord Jesus, is this gospel that is our hope uh, here at church, in our neighborhoods and around the world, would you by your Spirit help us so to see that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone, first for the Jew and then for the Greek, that as we stare in amazement into who you are and what you've done, flooded by your love, there's no way that we will be ashamed, but the very reverse, instead we will glory in the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.